There is a lot of talk in the air right now about one of the most compelling figures really in recent human history. I am speaking of that compelling figure of Marie Antoinette, a life which tasted such remarkable joy and delight and such sorrow and grief by its end. And uh, it is extraordinary what this woman experienced in her uh, uh, short life. And uh, that life uh, is uh, coming to life again in several different ways for the current public, and especially in wonderful fashion in a magnificently crafted uh, historical novel called Abundance, a novel of Marie Antoinette, and the writer is Sina Jeter Nasland, writer-in-residence at the University of uh, Louisville, responsible for uh, several books before this, including uh, Ahab's Wife and Sherlock in Love. And uh, this current book is published by William Morrow, an imprint of HarperCollins, again called Abundance, a novel of Marie Antoinette. And Sina Jeter Nasland, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thanks so much, Greg. It's great to talk to you. I'm very happy uh, to have this uh, opportunity. Uh, could you tell us just briefly what it means to be writer-in-residence for the University of Louisville? What does that mean? At the University of Louisville, I teach one course uh, during a year's time, and I'm available to represent the university on the literary scene, traveling around and giving talks to people. Very good. Tell us what inspired you to take up this intriguing figure of Marie Antoinette and to write about her uh, in, in this particular way. Greg, her story has fascinated me since I was a young child. To me, it was a kind of reverse fairy tale, a reverse Cinderella story. Instead of a poor, deserving, beautiful girl getting to marry the prince and living happily ever after, Marie Antoinette was born to be a princess, and she did not live happily ever after. To me, that meant reality. That meant in real life, we are never safe. Whether we're born to a good position or we earn it for ourselves, we are vulnerable as human beings. So it was a scary story uh, to me as a child. Feeling we were never safe, I thought, what can we do about this, this condition that we human beings are in? And it seemed to me the only answer was to try to be kind to each other. At least we could choose to do that. So I had this long-standing interest in the story of Marie Antoinette. Now, at that time, I did believe that she said when she was told the people of France were hungry and had no bread, I believed she said, let them eat cake. That's what everybody associates with her name. I came to find out later on through Antonio Frazier's biography published in 2001 that Marie Antoinette never said that. So suddenly her whole nature and stature changed in my eyes. I became fascinated with her story of her rise in popularity and prominence and her precipitous fall as well. Again, it seemed to me a sort of um, cautionary tale of what can happen to us. Hmm. Tell us about your decision to uh, write about Marie Antoinette in, in this particular format, in a historical novel, and also the fact that you have written it in first person. It is as though we are hearing the thoughts or reading the journal of Marie Antoinette herself. Tell us about both of those decisions you made as a writer. When I was on book tour with my novel Ahab's Wife, 
I stayed in a little town in Darien, Georgia, to attend a community clam bake, as it was, whales and clam bakes sort of being related to each other. And while I was there, I stayed in a room called the women's room that had a shelf of books, including a biography of Marie Antoinette. This was an old biography that had been published in the 1930s, translated from German into English by uh, Stefan Zweig. The subtitle of that biography was The Portrait of an Ordin- the Portrait of an Average Woman. I read the book uh, for my entertainment and was fascinated by what an exciting life Marie Antoinette had led. She and the king almost escaped from France, which was something that I hadn't known about. But as I read, I also rebelled against Stefan Zweig's attitude toward Marie Antoinette. As his subtitle suggests, he does not have a very high opinion of an average woman. To him, an average woman is limited in, in intelligence. Uh, she's selfish. She's materialistic. That seemed inaccurate to me as a portrait of average women. And also, when I uh, read um, what he quoted from Marie Antoinette's own statements, I found in her own statements a person of intelligence and sensitivity. So it was at that time, when I was on book tour with Ahab's wife, that I began to entertain the idea that perhaps there needed to be a revisionist view of her. What helped me along the way was the Antonio Fraser biography, because she had done a great deal of the research to give us a more compassionate picture of Marie Antoinette. Hmm. I wanted to write about her in my own form, which is the fictive form. I'm not a historian, although I have done a great deal of historical research of this. It seemed to me that what was lacking in the big picture of Marie Antoinette was the story from her perspective. So I chose to write her story as she lived it, in the first person and in the present tense, not retrospectively, not in the shadow of the guillotine. When she lived her life, of course, she did not know that was going to be her end. So I wanted to put the reader as closely, as close to Marie Antoinette as possible, really to put the reader inside the thoughts and feelings of Marie Antoinette, looking out through her eyes at her world instead of looking at her as an object. I didn't want to write about Marie Antoinette so much as I wanted to recreate the experience of being Marie Antoinette. Mm, which you really have done, and I think you've just touched on something especially interesting in that it would be one thing uh, if this were somehow from from the grave, the the memoir of Marie Antoinette looking back over her life. But in fact, this reads much more like a journal written in the moment, that when Marie Antoinette is is living her life and responding to the world around her, uh, it is with a real sense of the moment and uh, with very little sense of, of where all of this is headed. And That's he- correct. I, I have not written, really, a memoir but a recreation of moment-by-moment experience. It's almost like a thought journal or a thought diary. Uh, I I let the reader identify with her as she sees this person or that person, as she hears this or that said, as she herself speaks. Hmm. You have adapted a, a, a wonderful writing style here, and one of the things that impresses me is that it is an ornate an ornate sort of 
manner of, of, of speaking, a, a real elegant use of the language, and yet not in a way in which we have to sort of struggle to understand it. Uh, I mean, t- t- to understand what is being conveyed. And, and I'm not even sure exactly how you've managed to achieve this uh, style, which is at once both relatively simple and yet so beautifully ornate and of another time. Oh, Greg, thank you so much. That's exactly what I was trying to do. To find her voice and the way her mind moved through language, I read letters that she had written to her mother. Those letters still exist. I also used um, pieces from other people's letters and journals in which they quoted what Marie Antoinette had actually said on various occasions. So I listened uh, through all of this period of time, over 200 years, to Marie Antoinette speaking in her own letters and in the notations of others to get the cadence of her voice. You know, the 18th century was a very ornate time, and it's represented in their architecture, in uh, the way music is composed then, and also in their sentence structure. I knew that if I wrote in an exact pattern like the 18th century, that my contemporary readers would have trouble with that uh, kind of sentence rhythm. So I modified it to give the flavor of the 18th century, what I thought was the authentic flavor of its arabesques in language, without uh, creating impediments to contemporary readers' understanding. So I love your description of what I've done. That is exactly what I hope to do. I think one thing that uh, will also be intriguing to people is that uh, those of us, even with a, a relatively vague notion of who she was and why she matters, know something of her end. I don't think a lot of us maybe are are nearly so acquainted with how interesting and poignant her story is as, at, at the beginning. And I don't mean so much her birth, but I mean as a young teenage girl having uh, the, the course of her life altered by uh, the man she is given over uh, to marry. Tell us just a little bit uh, about this and, and what it was like to write about this. Marie Antoinette was sent to France by her mother, Maria Theresa, the Empress of Austria. The idea was that her marriage to the future Louis XVI would help to seal an alliance between Austria and France, who had been enemies for a hundred years. It was an effort at creating a lasting peace in Europe. Marie Antoinette was a dutiful daughter of 14 when she was sent to France to marry the Dauphin, the future king, who was only 15 years old. She was essentially carrying out her mother's plans and plans that the mother had construed in conjunction with the old king, uh, Louis XV, who was actually the grandfather of the future Louis XVI. There were problems with the marriage from the get-go in that the marriage was not consummated on the wedding night or the next night, or the next month, or the next year. In fact, it was seven years before this marriage was consummated. When Marie Antoinette first came to France, she was adored by the people. She was beautiful, she was graceful, she was gracious and charming, and everybody loved her. But when the marriage was not consummated, she was blamed rather than the young Dauphin, age 15. Why didn't he consummate the marriage? That's 
something of a historical puzzle, even so, even now. Um, it seems that he and some of his brothers were simply not very interested. There's no suggestion uh, that he was homosexual. It was more that he was a rather asexual person in his natural inclinations. She was blamed for this. The economy got worse and worse, and her popularity deteriorated. What happened was that many libelous pamphlets were printed about her. She was depicted as a person constantly engaging in drunken orgies, somebody who had no time for the, uh, for the Dauphin and later for the king. The marriage was still unconsummated when they became king and queen at ages 19 and 20. So it was a heartbreaking time for her. It was embarrassing. It was frustrating. Throughout it all, uh, she maintained good cheer toward um, her young husband and tried to be encouraging. The problem of the lack of the consummated marriage was finally solved when her mother, Maria Theresa, sent her older brother, Joseph II, who was actually the co-emperor of Austria, from Vienna to Versailles to give the young couple marriage counseling, or we might say sex therapy. He was actually very effective in this, and they went on to have um, four children. But um, the problems of the country were much more vast than the problems of the bedroom, and despite the people's joy when they did have children, uh, their favor continued to decline because of the economic conditions, the hardships of poor harvest, famine in the country. Hmm. One of my favorite moments in Act One of your book is uh, when we are with Marie Antoinette uh, as she enters Versailles in an ornate carriage for the, for the first time, I believe, and as we read her words of, of her uh, impressions of this great joy, ah, so soon the carriage rumbles forward toward the court of Versailles through this small town where the streets are full of happy people ready to celebrate the marriage of their dauphin. The French are boisterous with gaiety for my sake. A woman reaches out to touch the coach as we pass. Take care, take care, the words spring from my lips, for I would not have this day marred by an, any accidental injury. The coach slows, and I am glad. No one must be trampled. Not so much as a toe will be caught under my wheels. How extravagantly joy is written on every face. I like their big, sharp noses and high cheekbones and the high color in their cheeks. And there's a good round face, and the old people have tears in their eyes that they have lived to see their Dauphin's wedding day. I laugh aloud. The fishwife looks right at me and pats her belly and gestures, her smile radiant, that I shall soon be made big. I cannot help but laugh. She caught me by surprise. Their joy joins with my own. And now we rattle through the tall gilded gates among the uniforms of guards and soldiers and the finer garments of less common people. Uh, it is just untrammeled joy. And, uh, and that, of course, is, we presume, is what she would have experienced on that day. No sense of foreboding that, uh, that this is not somehow uh, a, a fairy tale, a, 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 that, that in fact this is all going to unfold. Uh, we, you've really captured the, the joy and the hope of that moment. Well, um, thank you. I, I think that for her she was um, 
a complete innocent. She was a person of goodwill and kind heart. She was concerned about the welfare of the people, as the passage uh, suggests. She was not at all this callous, hard-hearted person that we have come to associate with the name Marie Antoinette. Hmm. Tell us how things go so wrong uh, between royalty and and population. You know, it was, um, I think, mainly a matter of the economy and of the enormous debt that uh, the government had. The debt was already large by the time um, Louis XVI and his wife Marie Antoinette came to rule. Um, Louis XV had spent money extravagantly in various ways. When his strong box was opened after his death by smallpox, people were hoping to find enough money to smooth things over, but in fact there was very little money in the old king's uh, strong box. Then Louis XVI made a decision to help the American colonies win their freedom uh, from England. He wasn't interested in the cause of liberty per se. He was interested in weakening his old enemy, England, by depriving England of the uh, colonies, the American colonies. So it was a choice that made a certain amount of political sense, but uh, the government was already heavily in debt and engaging in this war increased the uh, debt in a tremendous way. Louis XVI turned to the nobles, hoping that they would agree to be taxed and to share more of the burden of the debt than they had ever shared. The nobles were practically exempt from any tax, and they were not at all interested in helping out the country. It was a time in which the rich wanted to grow richer. Sound a little familiar, maybe? Mm. (laughs) Uh, At the expense of whoever, certainly at the expense of of the poor. In frustration, Louis XVI convened a national assembly where the three levels of society would be represented, the nobility, the clergy, and the common people, hoping this would put pressure on the nobility to put their shoulders to the wheel and to help out more. In fact, they stood staunch. They refused uh, to help in any way. And in that situation, the common people demanded more and more power. After all, they represented 96% of the population. And the names of these assemblies changed from time to time from the National Assembly. It became the States General, which was a body that had not been convened for 170 years. This was a very radical situation. And then the Assembly of the Commoners wanted to become a group to rewrite the Constitution of France. And it looked as though France was moving gradually toward a sort of constitutional monarchy such as England already had. England had beheaded its king, Charles I, in the century before and gradually moved toward that form of government, which they still have today. But um, now the nobles encourage the king not to compromise, but to retain as much absolute power for himself and, more importantly, for themselves as they could. In the face of this, uh, the revolutionary fervor became violent. Instead of meeting in assemblies and voting and making speeches, the people took to the streets and attacked the ancient fortress, the Bastille, which was a kind of symbol of the power of the monarchy. When they attacked the Bastille, they tore it literally stone from stone. It would seem impossible that people could take apart such a 
gigantic, monumental building. But they did, and they cut off the heads of the governors and paraded them in the streets. And this began the violent phase of the French Revolution. Hmm. And, of course, Marie Antoinette is caught right in the middle of this. You say that it, it, uh, that for many she was known as Madame Déficit, yes. the, the Madame of the, of the Deficit. And you put in the words of, a, of her friend, Count, uh, Count von, von Fersen, uh, this account of, of the people's opinion of her. She asks him to tell her honestly, truthfully, what do the people think of me. She wants to know her political uh, situation. And upon her insistence, he says, if you will have, uh, have it so, it profoundly grieves me to report that the queen is quite universally detested. Every evil is attributed to her, and she is given no credit for anything good. People claim that the king is weak and suspicious. The only person he trusts is the queen. People say that in these days, the queen must do and is doing everything. and uh, Yes, that's quite historically accurate uh, that Pearson, uh, when she insisted, did tell her how things were. The information was not something that she knew how to um, act on or how to reverse. You know, when I look at Marie Antoinette, I see her as a kind of tragic figure. You mentioned that my book is divided into acts. In fact, there are five acts in it very deliberately, because this is the number of acts one usually finds in a Shakespearean tragedy. And I do feel that she, uh, like King Lear or like Hamlet, uh, was a person of good intent who was overcome uh, by the difficulties, the um, machinations of her times. She, um, through her own flawed nature, was unable to triumph in a physical sense, and she dies a tragic death. But along the way to that tragic death, like other tragic protagonists or heroines, she achieves a certain moral and spiritual stature. She begins to learn through suffering at least who she is, even though she does not learn how to control the situation or to save herself. Hmm. Well, and, and she, uh, she comments at one point that uh, with her young children, she intends to educate them better than she herself was educated. I mean, she comes to realize that she did really not know enough about the world and, and, and people unlike herself. And, uh, and, of course, by the time her all-too-short life ends, she has learned a great deal about the world and how it works. You know, if I were to name her tragic flaw in a nutshell, I would say the tragic flaw of Marie Antoinette was that she did not like to read. That perhaps sounds a little reductive, but I mean by that to represent her lack of education. Uh, she was the tenth daughter of Maria Theresa and the fifteenth child. Her mother thought that she would never have to marry anybody of much importance because she had older sisters to fill those slots, to make those moves on the great chessboard of Europe. But some of the older sisters died of smallpox, and suddenly Marie Antoinette was in line to make the most important marriage to the future king of France. At that point, her mother began to look at her more carefully, and what they discovered, she was oh, 13 years old by now, 
was that though she could speak in a fluent and charming manner, she could neither read nor write in any language. She was more or less illiterate. So they, of course, began to uh, tutor her. They also straightened her teeth and put on rudimentary uh, wires. She had orthodontia. It must have been horribly painful at the time. Uh, They corrected her posture and her hairline. They tried to fix her up before shipping her off to France. But that deficit in education could not be made up so easily. She continued to be tutored some while she was in France, but now she was away from her mother, and she was really in a pretty powerful position herself. And while she was always courteous to her tutors, she really didn't learn much because she had not acquired the skill of uh, reading. Hmm. So for advice... She didn't have uh, any, anything except what people whispered in her ear, often serving their own ends. She didn't have any broad base of reading uh, in the history of her times. Louis XVI was better educated than his wife was. He had studied history, particularly the history written by David Hume, from his childhood. In fact, he had met David Hume in person. But uh, he was an indecisive person, and He lacked any confidence in himself and his own judgment. So between the two of them, uh, they were really uh, not equipped to rule. It was a position thrust upon them uh, by who they happened to be born to be, an unlucky birth, as it it would seem. Hmm. And that reverse fairy tale as you were uh, talking. Uh, And, of course, I think it's hard for many people to understand just how savage this French Revolution turned out to be. Yes, it did. And certainly, as I did my research, I became increasingly horrified by uh, the violence, the viciousness, the cruelty, the savagery of the French Revolution. You know, one must always remember, I suppose, that um, these people had suffered under the yoke of the monarchy. They were starving. These were very hard times. But... uh, while they started out idealistically, looking for equality, fraternity, some sort of justice, those ideals were abandoned with the rush of violence, and um, their justice became a mockery of justice. They <clears throat> would try people, find them guilty, and execute them. The guillotine was invented during this time and executed people quite efficiently uh, without really accusing them of any specific crimes. The people were essentially executed for who they were, and sometimes they were simply the enemies of the people in power. Mm. Eventually, uh, the leaders of the French Revolution turned on each other and began to execute each other as enemies of the people. So it, it was a time of lawlessness and uh, a time of um, extreme violence. In the face of this reign of terror, which it was called at the time, Marie Antoinette uh, met the danger to her family and to herself with a great deal of courage. She was loyal to the people she loved. She uh, was calm and brave even to the very last moments of her life. Throughout her life, I found that she was always gracious and kind to the people immediately around her. She lacked a knowledge of the broader context of suffering, but when someone was in trouble within her presence, she extended herself. When on a hunting trip, for example, to go back a little bit in her history, um, a peasant was gored by a stag that was being chased. She stopped her coach, 
got out, put the person in her carriage, held him in her arms, sought medical help for him. When he died, she took care of the family, sent money uh, to the family. And she was responsive in a way that probably no other noble person would have done to pick up this bloody peasant and and, uh, nurture him to the best of her uh, ability, at least with her uh, loving and caring presence uh, in that way. She ordered that when she was hunting, the coaches and the horses were never to cross over the fields of the peasants. She was the only person who saw their land and their situation as something that she needed to protect and nurture. Antoinette had this kindness and graciousness all through this period of the reign of terror as well. Such a compelling figure, I mean, even more so than than she is in, in sort of uh, her misunderstood persona. I mean, the real Marie Antoinette complexities and all, so much more compelling and, uh, and of course, a much more admirable figure. We've yes, fun- I certainly agree. I'll, I'll just end this by, perhaps by mentioning the story of her own execution. As she uh, mounted the steps and uh, to the platform where the guillotine was waiting for her, she stepped on the foot of the executioner. She stopped and said to him, Pardon me, I did not intend to do it. And then went ahead, put her head down, and, and for this man to lower the blade of guillotine and for her to uh, suffer her own execution. But think of the presence of mind to stop in a moment like that and make an apology to somebody who was essentially a functionary. Hmm. But she did not uh, want the man to think that she had tried in any way to insult him by stepping on his foot or to belittle him in any way or to have some petty triumph over him. Instead, it was a mistake, and she apologized. Hmm. I I did not do it on purpose, I say, with simple sincerity. Uh, Simple sincerity, not the qualities we immediately think of with the character of Marie Antoinette, but, uh, but there it is, told so beautifully in the pages of this book called Abundance, and what a wonderful title that is, a novel of Marie Antoinette, published by William Morrow, the author Sina Jeter Nasland. Sina Jeter Nasland, I loved this book, and I congratulate you on writing such a wonderful, wonderful work, which I know people are, are so thoroughly enjoying. I thank you so much for writing it and for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. Best wishes. Thank you, Greg, and I loved having this interview with you.